Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ after my sister Marsha Joyce Who I miss Because she used to fix everything that was wrong What can I say? But we have the author of The Ninth Session. This book is really great. And I didn't realize that Deborah was an NBC television show advisor on my favorite program, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. I just love that program. <laughs> and and on and on Monday, DPLI will be here because she worked for them also. This is going to be fun. So we're going to talk about The Ninth Session, and this is going to be fantastic. So tell, tell us, give us a short summary of the plot and the definition between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I don't think people know that. That's a really a, a great distinction, Fran. Um, uh, the, the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is pretty vast. The training is very different. Unfortunately, the words are so, so closely similar that it's easy to mix it up. A psychiatrist is a student who goes through medical school, medical training, and uh, then picks a, a specialty to go in, and the specialty is psychiatry, and then they do further training in that. So they have prescription privileges. They can do therapy. A psychologist is trained specifically in the mind and behavior. So the training is uh, different. Uh, and leads to a doctorate, and most people do clinical mm. therapy or treatment of some kind. Um, mm. And generally, there's no medication, um, prescription privileges, but the approach is different. Psychologists do the clinical therapy, and for the most mm. part, psychiatrists do the medication piece of therapy. Um, and to answer your second question, the ninth session is what happens when you, when a doctor takes on a patient and changes mm. her life, and can you stand up and figure out what the right thing is to do in a situation like that? So it's, a, it's definitely a double-edged sword conflict, mm-hmm. which you know all, all books like to kind of create. Uh, but to me it was, what if I had a patient that really kind of mm. revealed something to me that would change not only my life, but the trajectory of many people's lives? That's a difficult position, I mean, because a lot of psychiatrists are sometimes um, over-medicate, or they really don't know, or they just sort of like hope that they do the right thing, and that's, that's a hard job to know, you know, exactly how to diagnose somebody and how to tell them well, what, what to do. That's scary. Well, you know, with, with really good training, diagnosis yeah. and, and um, treatment aren't that elusive, and, you know, it, it requires uh, 
a, a person to, to really be good at it. And that's why yeah. psychologists and psychiatrists, we spend years, decades learning about mind and behavior. But yeah, maybe Fran, what you're talking about is the invisible piece to this. It's not like yeah. you come in with a broken arm, you, you see the break. When you come in with depression, you know, there's, it's invisible. So have we gotten it right? Did we get it right? You know, did we get the diagnosis right? Nine times out of 10, I would say we do. Uh, but mm-hmm. that you don't want to be that one person that has a very complex diagnosis that gets misdiagnosed over and over and over again. And that happens, yeah, too. I know. I know. That's scary. So we have Alicia mm. Reed. I like her in her own uh. way. <laughs> I felt bad for her a lot because she got blindsided, but we like her. So what is her method of evaluating a patient? And tell us. This first scene got me because I'm saying, oh, my God, how many people would identify with going to a psychologist or going to a doctor or me going to the dentist and having a panic attack, not wanting to be right. there? <laughs> right. Well, you know, like I said, um, Dr. Reese is, is a character that's been in therapy herself, has gone mm-hmm. through training herself, and has been in practice for 15 years. So she's been around the block. And when you meet a new patient, there's a whole intake process that you're trained to um, use to do your assessment. And though in this beginning scene we really don't get a full assessment, it's pretty easy to distinguish what's going on uh, with patient Lucas Farrow. And um, I just wanted to to really break break down the experience mm-hmm. of, what it's like to have a panic attack, what it's like Mm -hmm. to be with somebody who has a panic attack, and what it's like to be with somebody who may or may not really want to be in therapy but needs to be in therapy. A lot of people don't realize it. They don't want to face it. And there's nothing wrong with getting help if you really need it before it's too late. True, very true. There's still so much stigma surrounded with mental health and mental illness. And people, you know, maybe even if it's not a stigma, it's like, well, I don't want to talk about this with somebody I don't know. Or, you know, I don't want to need another person to get through whatever challenge or struggle. Uh, So there's lots of layers to why some Mm -hmm. people come into therapy and why some people choose not to. Well, they define a panic attack. How did you create that session where Lucas had a panic attack, and the hard part is, how do you stop it? How do you know? <laughs> and you have, to, you have to stay calm. I know that. You don't want to have the panic attack, too. I mean, I've seen it. I know it with my nieces. When they get a test in school, they'll call me and they'll say to me, help me study so I stay calm. I go, no problem. I got mm-hmm. you covered. Or they'll say to me, I have to take a Xanax. I said, no, you have to take your aunt to have a cup of coffee and sit down uh, and have a cup of tea. Uh, you're, a good, you're a good support system. I'm uh, a good writer, too. When I help write a term paper, so that sort of comes in and I help them write. <laughs> oh, Work Fran, that's good, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you write what you know, right? As writers, we try to, to write what we know or we research to, to learn so we can write. Um, as somebody who's had panic attacks, that was a very easy thing to outline. And as per- so personally, I know what anxiety feels like. I know what panic attacks mm. feel like. And professionally, I also know that there's certain things that can be done, like deep breathing, 
yeah. talking softly, you know, removing yourself and sitting in a position where you can kind of slowly calm down. Those types of interventions work, and so does allowing the panic attack to kind of have its discharge. So much of mental health and mm-hmm. mental illness is, is neurobiological. And a panic attack is like a runaway train. It's just so hard to to mm-hmm. stop it, derail it, slow it down. So as somebody who knew personally and professionally, it wasn't all that difficult for me to write a scene. I kind of wanted to set the stage that this is a character who is very much um, in need of help. And mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that you like that opening scene. That you know, We all like to write something that grabs the reader. So that's nice to hear, Fran. Well, to be very honest, I talked about that last week. That was the uh, mode of the topic of my panel show was you create the great first scene, then you create the last scene, so how do you like the middle? That's what we talked about. That's so true. Yeah, we did, and I I had some five guys. I couldn't believe this. It was like, oh, my God, poor me. And they came (laughs) up with Vincent Zandri and Charles Soldberg and John Lansing and David McCallum and Jim Nesbeth. What a lineup. And they actually, you know, explained how do you get that middle part of the book? I go, yeah, I reviewed so many books, and sometimes I could take a pill and take a snooze pill and go to sleep. Right. Well, sometimes I take the book and I go, I'm not going to finish this. This is so sad. Right, yeah, sometimes you skip to the end. That's true. Yeah. That's true, so, but but that's the, the structure of writing. Um, there really is a pace and a beat and a crescendo, it, it, it's such yeah. a, it, it, to me, it's really an art form. And, you know, writers who do have success, it's a wonderful thing. Um, but many people who write and love to write, it, it's, it's exciting, at least for me, to get into the middle guts of the story. How do I still make this interesting? How do I still have the reader with me? Um, how do I move the story along and still have curiosity or suspense? You know, to to me, it's like writing a symphony, or at least I imagine like writing a symphony. Well, told- that there's there's lots of different moving pieces and instruments to kind of keep uh, the story going. Well, you're talking to a music major from college, so I got you. Well, so then you know what I mean. I too was a, a music, a yeah. very big music person, and I will tell you that, you know, the the whole aspect of um, music and Certain beats and pauses and patterns yeah. are definitely lyrical in how I write. Even if I'm writing nonfiction work or self-help help books, there's a pattern I, I see myself writing with. And it is so true. Like, okay, I have an opening here. I know how I'm going to end the book. All yeah. right, now what? <laughs> how do That's I tell the rest of the story in an interesting way? That's so true. That's so true. That's why my book is 76 pages. One of these days I'll write one that's 100. What can I tell you? So, well, you listen, know what you know, I got short, sweet, and to the point. What can I tell you? Well, but, you know, they're all, there are many, many great stories that are, you know, The Great Gatsby is not a long story. The Old Man in the Sea is not a great story. I don't know where we got those. into, you know, that books have to be 500 pages long. Um, you know, the, I believe that a story has a life, and if it's told in short story form or, an, or, or a novel um, or uh, 
uh, a novella, you know, that's the story. And the energy and the life of the story will will tell you where it begins and ends. So you've written a, a wonderful short story. That's great. Well, you know what kept me interested? That's my next question. Seriously? The, the part where you created the notes about the visit and define the components, transference, counter-transference. Oh, I love that, that you love that, Fran. That was so interesting because, you see, then I said, oh, my God, this is not an ordinary book. This is the, how do people understand what's wrong right. with the patient and how you deal with it. And, of course, there's the positive at the end. So how did you create that part? Why did you add that? Well, I, I'm a teacher at heart. I've been, I'm a professor for almost 20 years at, at Delphi University, and I love teaching probably just a smidge less than I love doing clinical work. I love doing therapy as much as I did 30 years ago when I started. It's just such a mm. vibrant, fascinating experience that's different every second of every day. And as a teacher, I always thought, you know, there's there's a lot of people that don't understand therapy. I mean, there are some shows mm-hmm. that really highlighted, I think, The Sopranos with uh, Dr. Melfi and, and Tony Soprano in therapy came pretty close to really outlining psychodynamic and psychoanalytic therapy. And I said, I'm going to, I want to write this book as if, and I did, I wrote it in the first person. So this is first person, patient coming in, doctor meeting the patient, and then everything else that surrounds the session, the notes that happen afterwards, the reflective thinking that happens afterwards, the diagnostic considerations that Mm -hmm. happen afterwards, and then the ordinary pieces of life that happen after each session. So to me, the ninth session is really a story about how a, a therapist particularly lives session to session with a patient and all the things that happen to her as a result of that. So I wanted to offer just a very different ap- approach. So, um, you know, er- every chapter is a session, or like a full session, followed by the notes that um, a therapist would do thereafter, the reflective kind of thinking and all of the defense mechanisms. And, and tr- I try to make it not too clinical. And, of course, you know, that's not so easy for me because I do tend to write in a clinical way. But mm-hmm. I don't think it, mm-hmm. it, it's above the reader. I think, I think it challenges the reader and informs the reader. And, and I'm so happy you love that structure because that's what I was going for. Well, you did, because I was able to understand it. And I'm saying I don't need a translator or a dictionary to understand right, what you said. Right, right. That, and that was my hope. my hope. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I mean, of course, you know, as a writer, anybody who who really enjoys your work, even if it's just for a second or two, it's such a meaningful thing. So thank you for saying that. Well, this is what's even more interesting, people is that I don't think people realize that psychiatrists or psychologists have to be weekly supervised on their own, too. So why does Dr. Prater think that she should return or go to someone else? And I agree, she needs needs to center herself a little bit. Yes, yes. Um, Well, the interesting thing, Fran, is not many mental health therapists believe in this particular piece of getting supervision, Mm -hmm. kind of like to make sure that, the therapist or the doctor is in a good place while treating their own patients. Um, The field of practice that 
that I come from, psychodynamic and psychoanalytic work, really embraces the thought of, okay, you've got a caseload, but is somebody minding the store for you? You know, let's check in on how you are. So supervision is something that I've done for decades long, and many people who practice in this way continue to do. It's just like a nice way of making sure you're okay and your cases are okay. So, um, you know, the of course we want to create conflict and we want to create issues so the character development grabs the reader, but then also there's transformation that can happen. And Alicia Reese is somebody who's just had a number of losses, including the death of her own husband. So during her supervision sessions in the beginning, we really don't know what's going on with Lucas Farrow. We, you know, there's panic yeah, attacks, there's, gu- there's guardedness, there's secretiveness. And during the supervision session, her supervisor, Dr. Suzanne, Susan Prater, says, you know, maybe you should refer this case out. Maybe it's too much for you. And Mm -hmm. that is something a therapist would say, and it is something that the readers would say. Yes, wouldn't the readers kind of say, "What are you doing with this case?" Maybe. Yeah, I would have called it a dropper too. Right. I would have said dropper too. Yeah. Right. But you know, as as you know, as many character studies go, she's numb. She's she's you know, kind of feeling lonely and alone. And she says, "The challenge of a tough case. I like this. Mm -hmm. It's kind of reviving me." Okay, all right, but let's 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 keep an eye on how things go, uh, which sets the stage, of course, for understanding that things go very awry. Um, oh, but yeah. that's what a therapist does. Uh, a therapist and a supervisor. It's it's quite a wonderfully unique experience. It's both therapy. It's it's guidance. It's uh, clinical over overviews. You know, how are you doing with your patients? What in your life could be inter- interfering? with your treatment, what in your life mm-hmm. is helping the treatment. So, you know, it's a wonderful network of, of therapy, and I really wanted readers to understand how very involved this is. This isn't just, hey, let me go talk to somebody. I blab for 45 minutes and then I leave. There's so much more to it, so much more for the patient, to the therapist. Um, and I'm so delighted you like this. This is it's like I'm so happy. I was, I was, I was, I didn't know what I was going to read. I just read the thing, and Cheryl just says, "Okay, you're going to do this, and that's what you're going to do with it, and just going to interview the person." They don't even ask me anymore. They automatically say, "I'm going to do it." <laughs> it's very, very rare that I won't do it. Right. Um, I think, out of all the years that I've been working with Cheryl and Partners in Crime, I think maybe once I told them I wouldn't finish the book because it was so outlandish and so off the off the wall that it made no sense. So I said, mm. if this person wrote a crime story like this, I, I won't put my name to it. It was so bad. Right. Yeah. And said, yeah. And you do have to be I careful, know. you know, associating yourself with certain things. I agree. Yeah, I won't. I so as the sessions progress. We learned some hidden facts about the death of a man and his family. So why does she allow him to control the sessions? And she doesn't call the police. <laughs> well, <clears throat> there are a lot of ethical pieces to therapy. Yeah. And if, if the therapist is concerned or has been told by the patient that something is going oh. to happen to someone or to themselves, in the here and now, then the therapist has an ethical responsibility to reach out to the police and say, so-and-so is thinking of hurting himself, 
or so-and-so is thinking of hurting this person, or Mm. I'm worried that they're a danger to others. But if something's in the past, it's not reportable. So this is an ethical conundrum that priests face, that lawyers face. Um, You know, the professional edict of privilege and confidentiality Mm -hmm. is, again, a very important piece to therapy. You want to be able to say, I can trust my therapist to talk about these things that I've said or done. Of course, most people come in, haven't, haven't done terrible things to this nature. But the idea of privilege is everything is contained in those four walls, unless you hurt somebody or you want to hurt yourself in the present or future. So when Lucas comes in and says, you know, this thing happened with Donald Gallen back in the day, it's done, it's over with. And Mm. Reef starts to think that's the panic. That's the reason this panic is happening. There's a secret. The secret has been so buried and so so weighing on his shoulders that that's what this panic is about. So when a person comes in and tells you, you know, I've done this, I've done that, it, mm. it's it's really the, and you know this as you come into your therapy training as you come in to be a psychologist this is drilled into you that you got to make sure that you learn how to be comfortable being a container or what we call holding information mm-hmm. that can be really overwhelming and that's why some people can't do therapy it's just too hard for them to morally or ethically live with these things. And there are others that can compartmentalize, like, okay, this terrible thing was said, uh, or, you know, this person stole that, or this person hurt that person. And you try to make sense of it in understanding who the, the patient is. And you also assess, you know, how dangerous is this person? Am I in danger? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, but that's what privilege is, and it's a slippery slope. So, it must you know, be in hard the book, to divorce yourself from it, though. Sometimes you have to divorce. I mean, as an educator and as a dean, I, I got kids that came up to me and say to me, you know, Mrs. Lewis, my mother smashed me in the head yesterday, or my yeah. aunt did this to me, or I, or something like that. And I had to think about it, listen to them, and know that I had to report it on the spot, even if they were That's wrong. right. Even if they That's lied. right. But, and I did. But the, the scary part was they never lied. They were telling the truth. That and and that's right, and that's the that's the part of being an adult or a professional where you say this information has been yes. brought to me. I have a responsibility with it. Yeah, you have to. Because and if and if they said tell, if they said biased. something, right? Yeah. If they said something that you know, I cheated on the test, you know, in fifth grade. No big deal. Y- y- but you, but you say, okay, let's talk about that. It's great yeah. that you're talking about it, but let's look at why that happened. What happened? Sounds like you're feeling bad about it. How do we make something positive come from something bad? You know, for the most part, therapists, doctors, psychologists, mental health professionals, even educators, don't run across characters like Lucas Fair. I mean, you know, that's why this is fiction. Um, but yeah. for the most part, you know, it it is. It's an important piece that these kids know that they can come to you with something really difficult and that they don't know what to do with it, but they trust that you would know, and you did. 
It's scary. One little girl walked in. As a matter of fact, she's not little. She's about 50. She's not that much younger than me. And she said, my father beat the crap out of me. And look at my arm. It's all full of um, uh, burns. Oh, and my God. Her, and I had to keep my cool because there were other kids there that heard it. I said, sweetie pie, just sit down because I'm gonna, we're going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I had, her, I had the guidance counselor upstairs. I had the mother. And the father came in. And he said, watch what I do next. I said, watch what you're never going to do next. I said, because I right. had him arrested. I couldn't That's believe right. it. I said, oh, my God, I have, this guy's got to go to jail. And I kept calling the mother all weekend long to make sure that he didn't come back. And she hasn't right. seen him since, which is really good. It's scary. It, yes, and you know, you you do get to see people who are sociopathic and think think yeah. that, that the rules only apply to them, and you know that's why we do. We have certain systems that in the community that we can call yeah. on and say, "I'm worried about this kid. Let's get this parent, you know, away. You know, let's get this person help." Um, but yeah, your students trust that you'll know what to do with that yeah, information. They and many patients well, who come in don't. for therapy, whether they're having an affair or it's a, you know they're secretly embezzling money or whatever the the issue is, which which again is is that's such a small percentage of people who come into therapy, uh, who who do those kinds of things, but they're essentially saying I need somebody to know, and consciously or not, I need something to be done about mm-hmm. this. I can't seem to do it myself, so I'm coming in here to you. And that's a big burden. But like I said, you know, most therapy cases are, you know, to to me, just wonderful journeys about kids and teens and adults trying to find out who they are, trying to make sense of, you know, things that were messy or traumatic in their life. It's rare that you get, you know, any of these stories, and that's what makes it, you know, so sensational. Tell us about the tone of the sessions. This guy scared me. He reveals things about his parents and siblings, and he inflicted some rotten things and things that were inflicted on him. He's crazy. Right. I mean, he, well, that came well, through like, it... Lucas, oh, my God, why is Alicia still in in the same room as you? Right. But she doesn't see <laughs> is, it. Is it, it. It's really, you know, I teach a psychopathology course at Adelphi, and one of the things that, and again, I, I'm not trying to sympathize negative, dangerous people. I'm not trying to make them more likable. I'm trying to understand what makes them them. So with pathology, we know from research and doing what we call uh, psychological autopsies on um, people who've done really heinous things that there's a pattern of early trauma usually from parenting figures. There's chain trauma, meaning it's not just one thing that a parent does or a child goes goes through, but many, 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 many things that disconnects the child to say, the world is a scary place, I don't trust mm-hmm. the world, i got to think about me, I'm going to control. And in the me- and during this, and again, it's, it's, it's a mix that is rare, but the mm-hmm. person becomes unable to regulate their impulses and emotions and feelings. And I'll, I'll go back to The Sopranos again. It's a great experience to, to kind of look at those sessions with Soprano and Melfi, how she's able to, to link the dots for him to say, you know, this is why, you know, it's easy for you to kill. It's easy for you to this. It's easy for you to that because you've endured so much. Not that it's okay. 
Yeah. But um, so I know I know the background of creating trauma and what it does, and I'm glad that the reader could pull. Oh my gosh, these are really terrible things, and maybe even to feel a little sympathy for Lucas Farrell along the way. And you know, yeah, why is why is uh, uh, Alicia Reese staying? Well. That's part of the conflict. You know, should she stay? Should she stay? She's trying to take care of a patient. These are all things in the past. Everything's in the past. And, again, it's it's definitely scary. But, you know, should she stop? Could she stop? Yeah, she could stop. She could refer him out. Uh, but she doesn't want to. There's something that compels her um, to, to want to help him. And again, coming out of this coma, this numbness mm-hmm. of loss and death, it's 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 reviving her. So the, yeah, therein is the conflict. But again, I love Fran. I love that you enjoyed uh, and even got frightened by learning these little pieces, these little bits and moments where you go, well, that was bad. Oh my God, that happened. Oh my God, what the parent did that? This is awful. I, I hate all these people. This is terrible. <laughs> And to feel sympathy, again, I, I often talk about feeling sympathy for the devil, because mm. I do. All well, these very tragic people who've done terrible things, not like even this whole current, you know, Brian Laundrie, Gabby Petito piece. It, I know. feel bad that, he, that he's so, he, they're not going to catch himself fast, and my heart goes out to that poor little girl's family. Of course, there's gotta of be course. More, there's got to be an underlying yes. reason. Why yes, she there's, went out with him, and there's got to be something that we don't know. And maybe there's, he didn't there's her. much. Maybe somebody there's, else I, did. I suspect, much like Lucas Farrow, there's much to to this young man's history yeah, so too. that can make us understand and go, well, of course this was going to happen. Um, but that's that's the the narrative of trauma. Trauma happens yeah. to all of us in some way. Most of us move through it, but a very small percentage, 0.01% of the population, fall into psychopathy. They fall into being a sociopath or a psychopath, which is, you know, the more common terms. And um, that's why, you know, true crime and all of the fascination behind these stories is we're worried about, you know, geez, cause, could this mm. have happened to me? Why did this happen? But um, so many, so many people have stories. Mm-hmm. Ted Bundy, serial killers, e- even people who, you know, have done things like Bernie Madoff. You you go back and you do what's called that psychological autopsy, or what might be more casually called like just a review of their life, and you start to see, oh my God, well, of course they're like this. So that's why it's helpful, you know, for us to really pay attention. I tell young people all the time, make sure when you're dating, you ask everything. (laughs) What were you like at three Mm -hmm. years old? What was life like at nine years old? Where were you living when you were 10? How was school? (laughs) Find out everything. (laughs) You should have my mother. My mother used to, the guy would come in, this is is true, and she would sit them down and she had her questions. Mm -hmm. Like her boys. Oh yeah, it was. A I love your mom. Good yeah, for my you. My mother that, was the that, toughest person on this planet. And then when I came back from the date, she would ask me the questions, her questions right. about how the date was, and then she would decide whether I should go out with him again. Usually, I dumped him. It didn't matter. I didn't care. But it was really. But, I mean, she was. 
she was a but there were red flags. There were red flags you saw, but your yeah. mom is essentially doing a check-in. Tell me about this. Oh, yeah, she did. Did he, open the, did he open the door for you? Was he a nice guy? All of these things yep, are important. <laughs> oh, you have no idea Fascinating. what she would do. Well, you have a mm. prognosis for this guy, and it says guarded. What does that mean? That's scary. If somebody's personality is guarded, it's not exactly somebody you want to be around because right. you're not sure. <laughs> Not a good thing. Well, you know, and, uh, and again, as a writer, you want to you want to create an arc for the mm-hmm. story and for the characters. So in the beginning, we've got Lucas Ferry's coming in with panic attacks. You know, there's he's got mother issues. There's there's a trauma here. Mm-hmm. There's a, f- a physical fight he gets into. All right, we're not so sure. We think he's depressed. We think he's anxious. So he's coming in for therapy. He's talking. He wants to get better. So the prognosis here is is good. He's coming in. He wants to do things. He wants to feel better. But as the story starts to evolve and devolve, as we learn more, we we learn there's more collapse here. Prognosis is means what's the outcome of treatment? Is the outcome of treatment going to be great? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be poor? When we write the word guarded, we're essentially saying, I don't know what the hell is possible here. It ain't good. And guarded is, is uh, to me, a way of saying, I'm not sure this is going to be successful. And the reader knows that by now also. So much like the clinician is doing her notes and all that kind of stuff. Mm. The reader is also learning, and and it's unfolding with the reader too. So the reader becomes the therapist as well. And guarded prognoses are very mm. scary, scary, and they're also it's it's heartbreaking. There are some illnesses that have no trajectory of improving beyond a certain small margin. And that's always very heartbreaking for the adult or for the child. Um, but guarded is a term that, you know, there's a, there's a duality to the word. We're not sure about the prognosis, and I have to guard myself because I'm scared. Well, before I forget, those of you that listened and heard the promo this morning, that was Rachel and Michael, Trinity House. And they're going to be here tomorrow at 5 o'clock with I'm Always There For You. It's a beautiful song. They sing inspirational songs, and I oh, could just lovely. listen to it all day. What better way to start October than with the one and only D.P. Lyle and the O.C.? On the 6th, we have Dick Belsky, Brian Silverman, and Dennis Palumbo. We're going to talk about the strange side of the victim and the, and the villain. On the 7th, Dennis and I are going to attack panic attacks. And on the 11th, this is like so mind-boggling, the World Play Chess, Robert Dagoni, at 12, special time. And the, the 14th, we have the author of The Memory Bell. On the 18th, Vincent Zandri and a friend that he won't tell me who it is. We're going to talk about whatever they decide to talk about. And on the 25th, Dr. Maxine Thompson and Lineage. And that's just some of October. There's a whole bunch more coming in November, too. So... Tell us about her family and the breaking in her sister's neighborhood. That was scary. 
And why does she think she's being followed? Oh, Alicia. Mm. Oh, my God. Well, you know, another character um, piece to Dr. Alicia Reese that can explain mm-hmm. to the readers why she may be slow to recognize that she's with a dangerous person is yeah. that she's a coda, a child of deaf adults, a hearing child in a deaf home. And the backstory to this is that there's a lot of comfort that can come when you're a coda in silence because you live in a home that's very different than a hearing home. So a lot of Alicia's experiences are living in the margins of two worlds. She's not totally a hearing person. She's a hearing person who also has deaf family members. And this CODA experience can kind of sometimes make you feel a little isolated because, mm-hmm. you know, he, the hearing world doesn't really understand what your life is like and the deaf world doesn't understand what your life is like. So Alicia's sister and her mother and father were deaf and um, she's very close to her sister and they signed. There's a tremendous amount of signing in the book. And, mm-hmm. you know, as the story unfolds, these pieces start to um, occur that that are questionable. There's a break-in near uh, her sister's house, and Alicia starts to allow her mind to to kind of float. And she's saying, you know, why why am I thinking about Lucas Farrell when the neighbor's house has been broken into? That's really freaking weird. Why am I thinking this? Yeah. But the truth is, is, that, is that we discover later on that it's not all that unusual. And this happens sometimes in psychotherapy that a patient's subconscious will talk to the, the doctor's subconscious mm-hmm. that there's this contagion of, of urges and intention that with ever being spoken about, you're, you can feel, and, and that's the power of psychotherapy. So she's thinking about this break-in and saying, why am I thinking about Lucas Farrell? Well, because mm. there's a truth to it. You know, there's a little bit of a mix-up as to why that house was broken into, um, but it, it does let us, again, heighten the suspense of the story and, and make the readers ask, well, why is she thinking about Pharaoh, why? What is going on here? And we come to learn that Pharaoh is is very much involved in Alicia's life in ways that, um, you know, are very concerning and stalking and all kinds of things like that. Um, and you know, it's it's not an unusual thing for somebody of Lucas's Pharaoh's character to do those things. So. But, yeah, the element of being a coda is another reason why, you know, I think it's hard for Alicia to maybe find her way because there's nobody who really understands her the way that, um, you know, Susan Prater does because she's a coda herself. She also understands what that life is like. My nephew was born with nerve damage. He's deaf. Wow. Wow. He's got the wildest, he's crazy, he's wacky. He's got a wild sense of humor. He works for a major hotel company. Um, he mm-hmm. does very well. But the other day on Facebook, he put something. He's got my wild sense of humor. Um, he said to his girlfriend, uh, did, you, did, you, did you know that the, the doorbell rang? 
And he, she said, how did you know that? And he says, my Apple Watch told me. She says, well, I didn't hear it. She says, he tells to her, well, I think you better get your hearing checked. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was absolutely hilarious. That's he funny. does this all the time. He's, he's working. But he's really <laughs> funny. I said, yeah, he lives in that kind of world, but you would never know it. He just looks at me one day. He goes, yeah, well, I can't hear you, but can you hear me? He goes, well, of course not. So <laughs> why do we know at times that... Who is AJ, and how is her murder a turning point? And at times that we know, we wonder whether Alicia's really using her skills, or she's just going by instinct sometimes. Right, right. Or, or, or is it just so overwhelming that she's yeah. really in over her head? Um, well, you know, the 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 characters of of AJ. Uh, a neighbor, um, the family that lives across the street from Alicia, has um, has some very, very damning effects on uh, what happens with Lucas and what happens with Alicia. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing where we move from the past. Lucas has said all these terrible things that he's done in the past. They they talk about the reasons for his anxiety and his mm. depression and why all these the violence. And as they start to get to the root of these issues, his family background and all of the trauma mm. there, he starts to say, I'm feeling better. I don't have panic. And we're saying, wow, this is really wonderful. This is good. So the idea of we're healing the trauma so, you know, this kid is, is starting to maybe feel and think a little bit better and clearer and maybe we have some hope here that he can kind of curb some of his other violent urges. And we discover, unfortunately, that that doesn't happen. But what happens with AJ is in the moment. It's present something terrible happens to her and what dr reese does is even though it's in the present it's still in the past because he says i just did this it's not impending violence it's not Mm -hmm. it's not a duty to warn that something bad is going to happen it has again already happened so reese makes a, a quick decision to say I don't think this kid is is fixable. I don't think this this is going to be anything that is going to change. So she changes the timeline and says, I'm going to call the police and say he's going to hurt somebody, which Mm -hmm. which then turns this treatment on its head and sends the book in a totally different direction. So without giving it away, where do you see her? At the end, is this a standalone, or are you going to bring her back? No, there's there's a second. There's a second. See how um, I knew that. How did you know, Fran? You're so smart. <laughs> and you know what um, it is? It's a, the truth of the matter is, is that I gave it away on August 25th, and I'm going to give it away um, on January 10th. My professor, my reading professor from my reading masters, taught me how to look deep into the of the, the passage. And underneath, and the deep structure, and he he drove right. me crazy. He tortured me. He tortured me. I handed in one paper, and I got a perfect ten. He says wow. nobody did that. I go, I don't know if I want to do that again. It was like forget it. He tortured me the rest of the term because he picked my articles. <laughs> he wouldn't let me pick what I had to do. And he and every week he said you're first. I go, why am I first? Wow. I don't know. And I contacted him about two months ago, and he came on my show. We talked about 
something very that you'd be interested in, the medicalization of education, medicating mm. kids when they all have learning disabilities, and mm. how, to, how to assess them properly. So I'm a reading specialist. On right. uh, January 10th, we're going to talk about um, how to assess a child through problem solving and reading. And Wonderful. He, he's, I'm like impressed with myself because it's not an interview. I have to actually know what I'm doing. So I have his dissertation. I think, yeah, I think you know what you're doing a lot of the time, Fran. <laughs> I try. I, I try. I try to. But so, how did you create this surprise ending? And where do you see her next? Because I like this character. You can bring her back. Oh, I um. I, I always thought that this would be a series. That this would be a character that would be both sympathetic but also uh, fierce. Um, somebody who you'd like to see be successful in spite of the fact that there's been setbacks. So at the end of the book, uh, Reese is leaving New York. She's leaving doing therapy. She never wants yeah. to do it again because of what's happened. And, of course, that's a good decision because she's not really – I don't think she's equipped to do it. I, I think that there's too much that's vulnerable in her to continue doing good work. So she goes out to Colorado and uh, decides, I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach about therapy. It's a way for me to still do something I love and still be in psychology and in the next book when she comes back uh, she's visiting her sister and an old friend comes in and says look I know you're not doing therapy but I need you to look at some videos here because I think something in these videos we're missing so as a child of a deaf adult Maybe you can pick up on some of these clues and cues that mm -hmm. we hearing people aren't able to see. And that leads to um, uh, a swirl of um, other, other criminal issues that takes her into the second book. And that book is called In Plain View. And it will be out sometime in 2022 or 23. Well, make sure but I, I always it. wanted to bring her back. <laughs> Well, make sure I get it. Oh, of course, I, mean, seriously. I definitely will. Definitely. Thank you so much, Are you Fran. writing anything else before that? Is there something coming up I am, before? I am. I am. I, you know, it's funny. I have my hands in a lot of different genres. I have uh -huh. a, a, chil a children's book series from Free Spirit oh, Publishing. Um, those, those books, sometimes when I'm sad, sometimes when I'm mad, sometimes when I'm bored, those are, those are oh, coming good. out. And then I do a lot of self-help uh, writing uh, on depression. I have a, a few award-winning books um, from Roman and Littlefield publishers on depression, depression in your child, depression in later life. Um, and I'm always writing something somewhere, like you, I'm sure. I haven't decided what I want to write next. I write my, my series, My Sister Died. And she left me with everybody else, her kids. She's driving me crazy. I love them. Yeah, they, they, I'm, gosh, I'm super Fran. crazy aunt. And my nephews, my nephews are 26, 24, and 21, and they still think I'm cool, which is really good. Oh, but that's lovely. Oh, my gosh. But that's a big trauma, Fran. That loss yes, of a sibling, it, uh, uh, terrible. That's terrible. We don't even know. We don't, that's why I go to stress management because, to be honest, I don't know what happened. She had a heart attack on June 26th, oh. right before she's right after she spoke to me, 
And I'm saying, she, she saw me that morning, she spoke to me that morning and said, uh. I need to tell you something. I said, what did somebody do again? She said, I'll talk to you later. She never talked to me. Oh my my mother had Alzheimer's. Oh my and the aide called me, and she said to me, your sister just called everything was fine. My, that person she was married to never called me until 8 o'clock at night. And he said, I'm going to pull the plug. I said, I'll pull yours first. Don't you dare. But I don't know what happened. I don't never really know oh, what wow. happened. Personally speaking, between, I really think that something happened that day that caused her to have a heart attack. Because she was perfectly fine. And she's not a you know, sick person. And the next thing I know oh, is like my. a couple of weeks later, I walk into hospice and they pulled the plug. I said, I'd like to pull your plug. I was in tears. And I oh. haven't been able to deal with the fact that She's not here to t- So my series, my Bertha series, is about two girls with two sisters from the Bronx. And the first book I wrote is called My Name is Bertha. And I wrote it because mm. she told me something. Because I weigh like oh. 108 pounds. I weigh 200 and something pounds. She says, you're getting to be a couch potato, and you need to lose weight, and you need to write something. I said, you're going to hate me because I'm going to write about us. <laughs> and I wrote two stories, Growing Up in the oh. Bronx. My brother-in-law, Jeff's brother, read it, and he said, did you realize how tough your mother was on you? I go, I just wrote it. Yeah, she was. If I didn't get 100 mm. on a test, I had to write it over five times until I got it right. Mm. And, yeah, she wow. was she was tough. Yeah, a lot a lot of other things she did. But I didn't realize that that was my mother. That was Ruthie. You didn't even start with My mother gave me a look like, forget it. I knew it. I give up. Whatever. So mm, losing boy. my sister was, was hard. So I understand when somebody goes through these traumatic experiences. But yes. Once a, once a month, I blow a steam to to somebody. He's just a social worker, but he's really good, and he listens to me, and That's he gives good. me breathing That's exercises. That's so great. You have a, because I, it's you know, good you have, have a safe place to do that. That's wonderful. But that's a terrible loss, Fran. Yeah, very, it was. very it was terrible loss. It was. It's horrible, and I haven't really come to grips with it. I don't think I ever will because ever so often she would call me at seven o'clock in the morning. And I go to, oh, my God, the pain in the butt is on the phone. I go, what do you want? She says, this is what I need you to do. I go, wait a minute. She ran a doctor's office, an orthopedic office. She was amazing. So I said to her, Marsha Joyce, what are you, you're supposed to be working. Well, I'm, in, I'm going to school. She says, well, before you go to school, this is what I need you to do. <laughs> or she'll say to me, this is what your nephew, my nephew was a, was a real pain in school. So she would call me, you need to call the reading teacher before she kills him. I go, my nephew, my perfect child? Oh, God. But he turned out to this, be a bodybuilder and he owned his own gym. So, yeah, I, I cracked this, up laughing from this, her. This June, this past June, 2021? My sister died in, I lost her in 2010. I can't believe it. Oh, gosh. Oh, boy. You, go, you know what? So this is, this is, is a long, most, this is a long yeah. loss for you. Yeah. Oh, boy. She was the most, um, she was nuts. She was the most person in the world I tell you you never knew what she was going to come up with but uh, <laughs> she left me with her two kids and her niece my grand my uh, nieces and nephews and that's okay because I drive them crazy right back so wow. mm. I, you know something I, I learned to, to live with it and you have to and every day I get up and I say to myself okay what would she tell me to do today that I don't want to do wow and I just wow. Say, yeah yeah, she was the most positive person on this planet. She never said anything negative about anybody. And she could have said a whole lot of things, but she was always, she even said to me, if you're a doctor or you work in a medical office, you're not allowed to have a bad day because everybody coming in is having a bad day. That's true. Your job is That's to make true. Up. Yeah. Is I she older? I said that about teaching, too. She was a year oh, younger Is she than older me. than you or younger? 
she, they, I told everybody she was five years older because she had kids and I didn't. And they believed me until she died. They did. So she was young. Was so she was younger. She was a year younger than me. Yeah. She was. But I told her oh, she was real. Terrible. I said, "You look older." Because she's, you know, what can I say? Yeah. So, <laughs> she was a riot. Sibling, did, sibling loss is unlike any other loss. You know, yeah. it's it's a very very hard trauma to move through. My heart is aching for you. I, I you know, so every day I think about it, and then my niece, her daughter, calls me and says. Uh, what would my mother do? I go, wait a minute, you're going to make me think like her? Um, mm. My niece is very close to me, and she's she's a lot like me, the poor child. And her two mm. kids, are the, well, Danny's a nurse, and the other one's going for criminal justice. So uh, my influence is right there. And when Danny went for nursing, I helped her write her, her, her uh, discussions. So I'm pretty good at that, too, so it was worth it. You better so, be careful. There are people listening. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. Hey, that I kid I was her, teaching in 2012, she didn't write that paper alone. That's funny. No, she wrote it. Well, she wrote it. they're okay. very lucky to the, have you. Yeah, I did the research, but you know what? It was fun because it kept my mind off my brain. So, of course. Where does everybody find out about you? And I'm, this is really a good oh. series, people. If you haven't read it, I don't know what you're waiting for, but that's okay. I have to post a review after to make sure that it says <laughs> what I wanted to say. Perfection uh, is my mother's thing. Oh wow, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, Perfection is my mother's name. I haven't heard. I haven't heard. I haven't heard that phrase in a long time. You're dating yourself with that phrase. Uh, people no, can find me at her, my she website. Had on her it's on her tombstone. It's perfect. No, it isn't. No, is it? Yeah. No. Uh huh. She, as a matter of fact, before she died, she had no. She had Alzheimer's, and she looked at me and go, "Yeah, no, Ma, perfect. What can I tell you?" Aww. Well, um, to answer your question, uh, I think the easiest way is my website, which is uh, com, And then you can get to my books, my my blogs, my all my social media. They make it easy that way, right? Just one-stop shopping. <laughs> I know. I, you know there, I, I'm sitting here and my, my emails are like, like, I just got asked for like 10 more books to review. I'm going like, where would you like? I was like, when would you like me to do this? I think the hardest one is called biological essentialism, and I'm trying to figure. I know what it means, but I was like, I have to. Really I don't know what it means. I what that see, but that would be a book I would want to read. Like, what is that? <laughs> he defines it in about 200 different ways about wow. people, about your your past, about your genetic makeup and stuff. And there's see, not that, one that's major right definition. Down, that's right up my alley. That's right up my you alley. Have the, I'll send it to you. Gosh. So, Biolo- biological what? Essentialism by Jay Hall. You know what the scary part All is? Right. He doesn't have any reviews. He has no reviews whatsoever. So I guess well, he will have he will have one because I'm getting it now. No, that's definitely right up my alley. I I'm love gonna, stuff gonna, like that. The I'm, biological I'm, perspectives and how it affects all aspects of your life. That's, that's that and the, Darwinism that's, and everything. Yeah, I'm going to tell him because he's really he found me on LinkedIn, and I don't know how these people found me. But can I tell you? But children's books are my favorite. And those of you, I just re- reviewed a book called I Don't Want to Turn Three, and the guy's name is Gramps Jeffrey. And let me tell you, this book was great because it teaches kids not to do the wrong thing and what happens when you do, and it's handled the right way. That's oh, that sounds great. That. I'm going to check that out, too. My God, if, if, if I had all the money in the world, if I won the lottery, it would be filled with books. Books, 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 books. I'm so you bad. You should see my house <laughs> filled with books. You should let the people in my building just knock on my door, what do you got for me? And right, yeah, you're like the lending the library. 
Well, the poor that live in a, came, come from foreign countries where they don't have books. So um, every other week I give one of them, like 30 or 40. If I read a couple, I give them all to them, and they take them and send them to Ghana and Nigeria. That's wonderful. So, yeah, so last week uh, one of them sent it to Nigeria, and, I, and the other ones got some this week. And they said to me, wow. what do you got for me? I, and I do. I send them clothes, too, but you know what? If I need something done, they just do it. So You're I a remarkable you. person, Fran. You I'm are. so hard to be good. But you like are. I say, Very interesting. Fascinating life, you know, all of the things that you do. And, and I'm so grateful that my path crossed with yours because this was a lovely interview. This has really been fun. It cheered me up, too, let me tell you. <laughs> but oh, everybody, I'm so glad. I, w- I wish more people would do nice things for people and kind things and do an act of kindness because maybe this horrible virus will realize we don't want you, you don't belong here, you've taken enough mm-hmm. lives and we don't need any more grief from you. So, Deborah, right. thank you so much. Stay in touch. Oh, Let thank me know you, what's Fran. Happening. Everybody have a great day. The sun is shining. It's beautiful outside. Have a great it day. It is. Best and kind bye. of weather. And thank you again. And thanks, thanks to everybody listening. Thank you so much. And bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.